would you say is the greatest downfall of our education system? It was fascinating to talk with Colin Seal today, founder of Think Law and author of Thinking Like a Lawyer, to hear that the biggest missing piece, according to him, is easy and equal access to curriculum that teaches kids critical thinking skills. We learned so much from practical tips like the best way you can help is to look for your top three areas of power and act in those, to teaching our kids that doing right is more important than being right, and how to think differently about public and private school education. Given all of those things, we left this conversation inspired and hopeful for change. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and how to be a little bit more anti-racist. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. So Colin, I'm so excited to talk to you and have you on the podcast today because I heard you speak first on a Common Ground leadership call, like back in May, I guess. And to be honest, like on some of the leadership calls or on some of the calls that I listened to during the school year, you know, I got my son who was doing kindergarten, like, you know, the next table over basically. And so I'm half listening and half like watching him change his Zoom name to Peregrine Falcon and being like, what is happening over here and shutting that down. But when you spoke, I was like this, I am 100% focused on. So because you were so candid about some tough topics with a predominantly white group of women, including why it's so important to talk about racism and privilege around education. So that I felt like I immediately needed to have a longer conversation with you. So I totally fangirl emailed you. I told Sarah, I was like, we needed to have Colin on our podcast. And she's like, you never get excited about anything like this. So thank you for not thinking I was totally nuts and for agreeing to be on this podcast. And so we'd love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself to start. Sure, sure. Well, one, I'm really excited to be able to tell this story because I think one thing that my obsession over critical thinking has revealed in the last five years that I've been really in depth with this journey with Think Law is that critical thinking doesn't really discriminate in that there's a challenge when it comes to access to solving real world problems, no matter where you are in the spectrum. And in fact, I can often see through a lot of the work that I do, whether it's in high poverty areas of rural Kentucky or high poverty urban areas of Chicago and New York City, that in many ways, when you're growing up in the struggle, the simple fact of having to struggle endows you with a certain level of critical thinking potential that comes included with the package that I found that in sometimes more affluent communities where from the time this child was two years old, his or her entire schedule has been micromanaged and they never had to actually like go out and meet people. Everything has always been an organized play date and they've never really had to optimize constraints in the same fashion. So this whole sort of idea kind of goes back to my story that in the way I like to tell it, it's a because not despite story. Uh, Scott Barry Kaufman, who does the psychology podcast, I was once a guest on on his show and he introduced me. He's like, oh, you've got Colin Seal here. He's the founder of Think Law. And he has this amazing story where, you know, he grew up in poverty in Brooklyn on free and reduced lunch. And his mom was an immigrant and a single mom. And his dad was locked up for selling drugs. 
And despite all of that, here he is, and he's doing his work all across the country. And as soon as he introduced me, I couldn't help but to say, hey, Scott, I just want to clarify one thing. Like, when you talk about this experience, I want to be really clear that nothing about who I am today, being a computer science graduate who later became a math teacher and worked in child welfare and went to law school at night while teaching during the day and practice law at a big law firm and now helping educators teach critical thinking using legal cases and upper grades, fairy tales and nursery rhymes and lower grades, and all of these trainings with parents and teachers to create a world where critical thinking is no longer a luxury. All of that is because of my upbringing, not despite. It's 100% because. And when we start really unpacking that whole story, the ability to think on your toes, the ability to assess credibility, being able to do the proverbial action of making a dollar out of 15 cents. Like doing all of these things were the bread and butter of what it meant to be a kid growing up in Brooklyn. So when we start telling this story around the critical thinking gap, one of the things that I talk about in the Thinking Like a Lawyer book that is probably my my most favorite passage is when I talk about the critical thinking gap being a gap, not in potential, but in expectations. Because there's no doubt in my mind that our kids have an unbelievable amount of critical thinking potential all across the board. The question is, are we going to continue to be okay with a society where genius is distributed equally, but opportunity isn't? That's the call for action that I'm asking for in a lot of our work. (laughs) I'm so excited already by that. Misasha, I don't want to step on your toes. I know you're about to say something. No, I feel like you just answered like five of our questions in your first introduction. So this is going to be amazing. But, you know, I think I'm also super excited to talk with you today is I'm the daughter of a math teacher and the granddaughter of a college professor. So we talked about education a lot growing up. And I love also the focus on critical thinking because you know, as the daughter of a math teacher, as a daughter of an immigrant, as you know, that all came into play in a very, a huge range of ways growing up. So, you know, there are so many things we want to talk to you today about all things education, including your own educational background. But I know Sarah has some specific thoughts too, that she wants to get into. Well, one of the things that you just said, you know, really made me think of, I think in one of your recent webinars, the distinction was made between schooling and education. And, you know, my head right now is just exploding with the exacerbation of educational inequality because of COVID. You know, the spring sucked. So many children did not have access to the internet, let alone all the other basic things to get schooling done, you know, when everything went virtual. But now in the areas I live in, in a lot of like wealthier areas, I don't even know where across the country, these homeschooling pods, parents are freaking out about creating these pods of kids so they can pool resources and hire tutors to help with online schooling so they can work. And already I'm like, okay, so that's another place where potential is being missed, right? What are the poor kids in schools ever going to be remembered in these pods? Is it just going to become a clear whoever can afford it will do it kind of click? Are all well-meaning parents even aware of their role in perpetuating and widening these gaps? Like, how do we help give kids equal opportunity because they are all filled with potential? So this feels really timely to be talking about it. And so, sorry, that's I just needed to get that out because this time I feel like is really magnifying some of the fundamental problems we already had going on in our education system. A hundred percent. And at the end of the day, I honestly 
I'm never going to be the kind of person who is going to fault the essentially human instinct to do whatever in the world you think is going to create a space so that your children will be able to have more opportunities than you did. I don't care what level you get to of success in life. That is an almost impossible thing to ever negate. And one of the things that really stood out to me when we start speaking about issues around access and equity is that really there's been massive access issues well before we started talking about a pandemic, right? So like, forget about Wi-Fi, forget about a working device, straight up access. How do I actually gain access? So there's an organization called TNTP that a few years ago put out something called the opportunity myth. And the opportunity myth negated this question that, well, if all kids just went to school and you know worked hard and did what they needed to do, then we wouldn't have any concerns. But it turns out that all across the country in high poverty schools, predominantly serving kids of color, you got kids coming to school every day doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing, except they're not receiving grade level work. So you could be the top notch 12th grader that a 12th grader could ever become. But if you're still giving ninth grade work in 12th grade, what does that actually do for you? And I start thinking about this other idea. You think about, okay, well, we've got these homeschooling pods. And really what you're trying to do in a lot of cases is you're trying to rectify inadequacies. You're like, okay, this system right here isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing for me. So I'm going to find my way to kind of get my own thing going. And when the Thinking Like a Lawyer book debuted, I remember on Amazon, it had like climbed to the number five book, like overall in gifted students education. And I scratched my head. I'm like, huh, I wonder what these other four books were. Two of them, the the top two were cursive handwriting and unicorn handwriting. Those damn unicorns, you can't beat those unicorns. There's no way you're knocking them out. So like the other one was was Carol Dweck's uh, growth mindset book. And the other one was like a homeschool planning book. And I started wondering, I'm like, you know, what does a top 20 look like? And that's when it got real strange. Because when I started looking at the other top 20 to 25 books in the top category in gifted students education, about nine of them were straight up test prep for gifted assessments. Colgate, Iowa, in New York City, the standardized uh, test to get into specialized high schools was up there. And I'm just like, huh. This, to me, shows me that parents are trying to level up. But when we say parents leveling up, we got to understand this isn't just super affluent parents in the Bay Area, because one of the things that really struck me when I went to the Bronx High School of Science in New York was the school is about 50 to 60 percent Asian. But I thought I was poor. A lot of these kids, like they were really struggling financially. Right. So for them, this was the come up. This was how they leveled up. This is what it was going to take. So I'm thinking to myself, like, all right, I'm sure we've all seen The Matrix. Right. And we get to this point in, in, in the movie, The Matrix, where Keanu Reeves, with his incredible acting, is like, hell, so are you telling me I can dodge bullets? And Morpheus is like, no, what I'm telling you is by the time you're ready, you won't have to. And I think about what it means for a kid like me who grew up the way I did to get access to an excellent education 
And it almost feels like in many ways I had to dodge bullets, meaning that most people shouldn't dodge bullets. Most of the time when somebody shoots you with a gun, like you're going to not be able to dodge the bullet. So they look at me as an exception to the rule. What I'm super committed to is to get to that other part where like, you know, Neo realized he was the one. So he didn't have to. I want it to become exceptionally boring for a story like mine to be true. Like, oh, another kid who struggled financially growing up and struggled and this sort of thing, but ended up getting a college education and a successful path to a really meaningful and fulfilling career. So whose job is that exactly? Is it the school system? Is it parents, families, communities? Is it advocate? I would say it's really all of the above. And that's kind of part of the reason why my work doesn't really discriminate. You know, we work with schools all across the board, certainly predominantly high poverty schools, but there's not a school in the United States or probably in the world that wouldn't benefit from more explicit instruction around critical thinking. You know, that led me to a question, and I want to come back to talking about New York and Bronx science and all that sort of stuff, but what do you think the purpose of public education is? So what do I think the purpose of public education is? Let me kind of preface that with something, okay? When you ask that question, what do I think the purpose of public education is, it really reminds me of some work that we've been leaning into given the heightened conversation around racial justice in this country. So I think about my mom. My mom came to the United States from Barbados in the 70s, and it was a struggle. You know, she's one of seven kids. My grandmother... Her husband died. So my mom's dad died when her youngest kid was still like hugging her the kneecaps. So my mom got told this story growing up that she had to work twice as hard to get half as far. And I heard that same story growing up. We don't live in a fair world. You've got to work twice as hard to get half as far. And I stopped in my tracks in light of everything with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. And I started asking myself, at what point does this stop? Like, I don't want to tell my kids that they have to work twice as hard to get half as far. I actually want to question a system that has created that to be normal. So like, I can tell you what I think the purpose of education is, but if I'm not really thinking about what we're really doing here, we'll never be able to get to the point of creating a system as it ought to be. So when I think about the educational equity equation, and this is maybe the math teacher in me, I'm like, on one hand, yeah, like that access matters. Yeah, I do live in a world where because of the color of my skin, people are going to be much more interested in what my credentials are. They just are, right? So I can't skip that part. In fact, I've got to double down on that part. In fact, even when I do double down on that part, where I get a master's of public administration from the top MPA program in the country at Syracuse University, I do Teach for America, I teach in Vegas, I teach in DC, I get all these professional connections from working. This is when I was in Las Vegas. I had all these connections. And now I'm number one in my law school class. I'm number one. I'm number one. I'm on the law journal. I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing as a stellar law student at the same time I'm teaching during a day at one of the toughest schools in Las Vegas. And 
I get 13 on-campus interviews. So for those of you not familiar, like OCI, on-campus interviews, that's like the big time, okay? That's where you get the big firms coming to recruit and come after you. And I did 13 interviews. How many job offers did I actually get from any of those interviews? Zero. Didn't. Zero. The one job offer that I got wasn't even from an interview. It was from a firm where there was a black attorney who I knew who lived in Phoenix. And because I had a network, because I had leveraged that network, he put in a word for me so that I didn't even have to interview. I just walked in and the job was mine. And it made me realize, like, there's a myth when it comes to meritocracy. Are we being honest about that? So if we start realizing that, like, it's not just about academic success, but it's also about racial justice. It's not just about preparing kids to navigate the system, but preparing kids to question a system, dismantle the system, and build a new one. It's not just to teach our kids how to, in a very compliant way, play the game. It's about teaching them in a very defiant way to slay the game. So when I look at like what we're really trying to accomplish in education, we've often fallen short because we set the bar super low. So that's kind of where I'm with it. It has to be both. We've got to play both angles. We've got to be able to prepare our kids to be successful in the classroom and also beyond the classroom. I love that because I've been thinking about how much my children hated online schooling, but that's probably where we're going again in the fall. I've got a nine and an 11 year old kids and I'm trying to navigate like my mental space to prepare them and myself for this. And I have been having conversations like all I want is to maintain their love of learning. I just, and their critical thinking. And is that enough? And what bar is that enough set against, you know? So that's a really interesting way to think about it, of, you know, really thinking about not just, you know, doing the check marks to get through this current system, but how do I envision the world that I want them to live in? And what are the skills that I, as a parent, think that they ought to have for the time that they grow up to be an adult? So that helps a lot, actually. And I believe we had this conversation during the parent workshop that, that I did with you and your other colleagues, where I asked that question, not about the purpose of education, but how you would actually go about defining success. And I thought it was very interesting because when you ask most parents, what do they want for their kid when it comes to success? They talk about fulfilling lives. They talk about, you know, being passionate, being good, having a family, like feeling happy, being kind. And you're like, huh, that's what you want. But if I were to ask your children what you wanted, would they agree? Would they say the same thing? And if all they're hearing is good grades, get into the good college, do all your homework, don't miss any assignments, but you've got this super deep vision for what success means to you for real, why are we lying to kids? Why are our actions not matching what's in our heart? Like, I get it. There's a lot of pressure to perform. My whole thing is, if we're going to put that pressure on a perform, we should at least call it out for what it is. A performance. It's a game that we're playing. And we're choosing to validate this game because we believe in the system. We believe that we've got to play the rules of this system. What I want to put out there, though, is that the system is not mandatory. It never really has been. It never really will be. I also want to put out there that the system really wasn't designed for everybody to succeed within the normal confines of that system. I 
think about my family coming from Barbados and they had this thing. Some cultures call it the susu. In our family, they call it the meeting. From Barbados, they call it meeting. And it was essentially a very popular immigrant thing to do. They didn't have access to credit. They couldn't get like small business loans. They couldn't even get like a credit card in many cases. So they would put $50 in a pot every week at church. And then they would rotate who would get the pot based off of chronology. And if somehow it went beyond, somebody had an emergency, like a funeral or death in a family or some sort of tragedy, they will get moved up in the order as this collective decision. That's how we got first and last month in security deposit on an apartment that allowed us to move out of my grandmother's house when I was in second grade. That's how people buy furniture and dealt with other emergency situations. We took care of ourselves outside of a system that didn't really allow us to engage. I do think that sometimes our blind faith in a system blinds us, blinds us to the power of us, to what we can be able to accomplish outside of that. So I do think both matters, but I just always want to question this idea of like, can we be honest with our children about what we really, really are looking for and want from them? I love that. I mean, I, you know, Sarah and I, I feel like are both products of, you know, a very structured, rigorous, you know, name focused system. And, you know, I contrast that with my husband growing up a black man in Louisiana, where he was told you're going to have to be twice as good to be sort of get half as much. And, you know, and I don't want that narrative for my kids either. I don't want to be telling my sons that they have to be twice as good to get half as much especially, and we're in the Bay Area, and we are sort of the epicenter of, you know, the college admission scandal, and seeing all of, you know, what has happened to education, and to access, and what does that say about us? So I love that both are involved in the power of the community, and what is past sort of all of the, what we're telling ourselves, what our kids hear, and, you know, being very real about that, because I think we do have an opportunity now to be very real about that. And so I really, that really resonates with me. You know, I like, I have 12 different thoughts in my brain about where to go next and what to ask you next. But, you know, I'm going to leave the, the New York questions for Sarah, since you guys have that in common. And, you know, so maybe we should go there next, actually, and talk a little bit about New York and your education and all of that. Yeah, because I grew up in Long Island. That's a very, very different New York than the New York you're talking about. I moved back to New York and lived in Brooklyn with my husband as an adult. But Long Island was my childhood home, which is, again, very different. What part of Island? Port Washington, which is Nassau County. Yeah, okay. So super nice suburban area. My mom's still in the same house I was born and raised in, like all that sort of stuff. But having grown up there, I feel like New York is not, especially New York City, is not really representative about like how the rest of the country's school systems operate. And so can you explain, because I think... It's important for people to realize that, and not all of our listeners are familiar with the New York school system. Can you talk a little bit about your experience in schooling, like where you grew up, and how that might be different or similar than what other people might see across the country? Because we all live outside of New York now, obviously. In this sure. So New York is extremely unique in a lot of ways. When I grew up in New York, I remember, like many other school systems across the country, particularly in elementary, middle school, the default is you go to the school down the street, okay? And I'll get back to the idea of down the street in a second. But the school down the street from us, at this time, you know, pre-gentrification in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, 
it was a school where, you know, probably close to 100% of the kids were on free and reduced lunch. Um, we had a, a very high immigrant population, including a massive influx of Haitian refugees that were coming in during that time period. And I'm sitting in this class in, in first grade, and mind you, my birthday's in November, and my mom actually somehow got me to start school early when I was in kindergarten. Um, and that's important to note as well. So now I'm in this class and I'm getting in trouble all the time. Like I just looked for it. I look back at myself and like, I just want to smack myself in the face. I was so rude, so rude. Like I'm sitting there and I'm like, you know, making fun of kids who don't know how to read yet. And teachers like, oh, Colin, oh, that's it. You're getting another worksheet. I'm like, oh, great. I'll just do it in two minutes. I was like the worst. I was so obnoxious and just awful. And there was a power professional in the class that saw the way I was conducting myself and told my mom, like, you got to get this kid tested. And... My mom didn't really understand what was going on, but it was really two things. One, even though I'm like a national public speaker now, I actually had a very, very, very bad lisp and stuttering issue when I was in first grade. But also she thought that I was a gifted child. And my mom didn't really know what that was, nor did the school that I was in offer any gifted programming. So now I get tested. And it turns out that when I took the test, to assess my IQ in kindergarten readiness to start school in November. The school that I was at in New Jersey, because I lived in New Jersey for a very brief period of time, they knew I was gifted and they didn't do anything about it, right? So the record had already existed, but as one of four black children in that entire school, I guess they figured, yeah, whatever. So now I'm getting bused to another school. Now. I am at this school where a lot of other kids are also being bused to this school. And I've got this very interesting experience where the same behavior that I used to get in trouble for was now required. Now, me questioning the teacher repeatedly wasn't willful defiance. It was me being inquisitive. Now, me, you know, walking around and talking to my classmates wasn't me being disruptive. It was being a collaborator. And... With only 12 kids per grade level assigned to this unique experience in a school where most other classes had over 30 kids in it, it just hit me again that genius is distributed equally, but opportunity isn't. So talking about opportunity, like that extended to being part of a gifted magnet program that was also a performing arts school. That one was also in my neighborhood. That was closer to me, actually. And at this school, I was in a self-contained gifted program all throughout the day, except for PE and certain of the art magnet classes. But even there, I'm like, I am experiencing a separate and unequal education as part of a public school system. It's separate and it's unequal. Okay, like my teachers didn't have 20 absences a year. I never had to worry about whether or not a teacher actually knew the content that they were teaching. But my classmates or my schoolmates in other classes, that was a regular reality for them where they were. So now here's where New York gets real funky. Well, before school choice was known as like a national movement or controversy or whatever side you land on when it comes to the school choice discussion, New York always had this incredible high school process because New York has the subway. New York has the best public transit system imaginable. So as a part of this, you get this massive book with like 500 different high schools that you can apply for. 
And there's also a subset of these schools that you can take a stand that you can take a test to get into. And 100% of your admission is determined on how you do on this test. I remember at that time, a lot of my best of friends were going to Brooklyn Tech. Brooklyn Tech was kind of the first tier of admission. And then Bronx Science was the next tier. And then slightly higher was Stuyvesant. Although for whatever reason, a lot of kids that got into Bronx Science would still choose Bronx Science, even if they also got into Stuyvesant. So that's kind of, there's always been this interesting rivalry between those two schools. And what got me is, it took me an hour and a half each way to get to high school. Picture that. Picture being 13, 14 years old, waking up at 5.30 in the morning and having an hour and a half commute each way for school. My local high school down the street was a dropout factory. But in my mind, it just always struck me like my family acted like I won the lotto when I got into Bronx Science. And I'm like, how is this the lotto? This is literally the same exact thing as having to dodge a bullet. Like, they had a kid from Staten Island. I mean, he took the damn ferry every day on the ferry. He got like a two-hour commute. Like, for school? You know how crazy that sounds? All across this country, we got people that can just go down the street within a mile or two and get an education that is of quality, that gets them to the next step. I got to go 90 minutes each way and this dude got to come on a damn ferry? Are you kidding me? So that was really kind of this eye-opening moment of like, how is this fair? How is this just? Why do I have to work so incredibly hard to get access? And even when I got there, just because you're in a school that calls itself a specialized high school doesn't necessarily make it all that special when it comes to serving kids of color effectively. Because I passed the test. I was supposed to be there. But nobody really seemed to care a whole lot when I was absent 80 times. Nobody seemed too concerned when I went months without turning in an assignment. And as an adult who knows the experience of being identified gifted at seven years old and being identified with ADHD at 37, man, I wish that these teachers didn't just look at me as a lazy black boy who just didn't feel like it and thought, hmm, maybe Colin might need some extra support. So that's kind of like what my experience is. And with all the controversy right now around there being fewer black kids and brown kids in specialized schools than there were when I was in high school, I'm honestly going to say, and it might be unpopular, I think the outrage is misguided. There's nine schools that are specialized high schools in New York, and there are hundreds and hundreds of schools that are out there. Like, I shouldn't have to travel 90 minutes to hit the lottery and say, like, that is justice. There's so many more kids that are not getting justice because if you can't walk to your neighborhood and get a high quality education, it's just not fair. That's really what I'm obsessing over. How do we create spaces where we recognize genius exists in every single corner, on every single block, on every single street? How do we unleash it systemically? I mean, I don't remember if we're going to talk about this later, but to me, one of the obvious things, my husband's Canadian and he always talks about how underpaid teachers are in the U.S. I mean, are there some simple things we can do, in your opinion, to address this systemically? Or like you said before, where do we expect it? Is it coming from the parents? Is it coming from the top down? Is it state by state? How do we even begin to think about the systems? So this is an interesting uh, segue because I think one of the most important aspects, and I think a lot of people that would consider themselves like, you know, woke and socially conscious would appreciate the construct that you can't really be colorblind. I don't see color. Like, I think most people are of the mindset of like, 
that's not really a thing. You can't really be colorblind. And doing right by folks means you've got to be both color aware and, and color kind, right? Intentionally very purposeful about what this all looks like. And what I push on is what is color kindness in practice? Like what does it actually look like in practice? And what I say is it always has to mean that in some way, shape or form, we are disaggregating the data. We are disaggregating the implications, the potential consequences of any policy decision. And in many ways, we're conceptualizing the why of like, why this is so important. So like, a lot of people kind of look at this idea of systemic racism and they're like, that just sounds like a lot of crap. Like, I don't really get what you're talking about. Like slavery was a long time ago, bootstraps argument. We already had a black president. And like, Colin, look at you. Look at, I had people tell me so many times, like, look at you, Colin. You're the American dream personified. Look at what you've been able to do. And I'm like, all right, cool. I'm with it. Look at what I've been able to do. Now, let's break down the struggle and the levels of the struggle. Because when you say it's not systemic, I always say, let's actually talk about the way the system works. And one of the most incredible things that I'm doing right now in the workshops that I'm doing with high poverty schools across the country is, and literally, I never doubt that this is going to be the same pattern because it's built in to the way we have done business. So after the Great Depression, they decide, well, we got to do something. Right, we gotta have some sort of standards for loans. So how are we gonna figure this out? And they had some standards that were like, all right, normal, like prices or whatever, and price history and other sales, whatever. But then they started looking at this other criteria. And it turns out that a lot of this other criteria was around the Negroes that were moving in, the Mexicans that are moving in. Oh, you got a lot of these Chinese people over here. And if you were degraded, you were redlined. Right. It was the color red was in the map and you literally could not get a loan in those neighborhoods. So you say, OK, well, that's not really a systemic racism. That's just about risk and whatever. They can just move into other neighborhoods. Really? Sounds like a great idea, except there was this little thing called restrictive covenants. So anyone who lives in a homeowners association knows what this is all about. Right. I can't paint my house zebra. I'll get in a lot of trouble. Right. But one of the other things you couldn't do beyond painting a house zebra is you couldn't sell your house to a black person, to a Mexican person. You couldn't sell your house to a Japanese person, to a Chinese person. And it made sense that they would make those restrictive covenants because they know that if even one family moved in, it's there goes the neighborhood. That phrase, there goes the neighborhood, had real meaning to it because you literally would not have a neighborhood where you can even buy homes if you had too many of those people moving in. So now we start looking at the COVID-19 pandemic and how these places with high population density seem to be a lot more susceptible. But that's not by accident, that's by design. That's all evidence that the system is working. And on the back end, whether it's East San Jose or it's Brooklyn or it's Chicago or it's parts of Phoenix, it's come full circle. The same people who have lived here for generations, now, all of a sudden, everyone else is moving in because they have the wealth that these people have systemically been barred from. Because for generations, health, uh, wealth in this country has revolved around property and real estate. And if you couldn't have it because you literally couldn't have it, across generations, that multiplier effect 
by no actual condition of effort or hard work, just around access and the legal system has created this inequity. So when I say like, when you look at Dr. Kennedy's work around, you're either racist or like anti-racist, it kind of makes sense because if you're passive about it, given the massive force of this structure, I just don't know how you compete. I don't know how you even could put a dent in stopping the traction of this massive force called systemic racism. I just needed a minute because that was super powerful. And yeah, 100% agree with that. You know, I you talked about the workshops that you're doing, and I wanted to talk a little bit about what you do at Think Law and also your book, Thinking Like a Lawyer, because first I'd love to understand more about Think Law. And then I read your book and loved that it brought law school into elementary school in some very tangible ways, but also like what that means for education and thought really for kids. And I know we've touched on some of this, but I'd love to hear about both of those, Think Law and your book. Sure. So Think Law, honestly, by definition, is an act of rebellion. It really is. When I was a student at any age level that I was at, like I never cared about grades. I never did work that I felt was like just dumb like busy work for a grade, didn't care. I was the kid that would help somebody with their homework and not actually do the homework. Had nothing to do with whether or not I was able to do it. If it was dumb, I just was not interested. That was me. Even in college, I'm like, all right, I'm a computer science graduate, computer science, whatever, but coding is kind of lame, it's terrible. I don't really care if this program works or not. I'm not gonna stay up all night trying to find a semicolon. It ain't that serious, because it's not. Nobody's going to live or die based off of the semicolon. So I don't even care. I'm done. Law school changed everything. Law school changed everything because all of a sudden it wasn't about having the right answer. It was about having a different angle. It was about really being able to see things that, that nobody really saw. And for me, that space where it wasn't right or wrong, where there wasn't a bunch of busy work, where essentially 100% of the grade was how you tackled this ridiculously complex fact pattern of made up craziness. I'm like, this to me, this was like a gifted child's dream. I loved it. It was like, picture this. Here I am in fancy law school, professor making 200K a year, and we're doing a case that is three sentences long. And it's written at a third grade level. And it's saying, hey, this five-year-old boy pulled out a chair in his aunt and she fell and broke her hip and she sued him for battery. Should he be liable? And I'm like, what kind of nonsense is this? Why in the world are we sitting here looking at this ridiculous case? Like, and we're spending three hours talking about something that's three sentences long. Why do we wait until law school to do this? Because when I saw this case, I saw my eighth graders at the edge of their seats going back and forth around like, well, if a kid is five, he doesn't understand the consequences. He doesn't know he's going to put her in the hospital. But at the same time, like if he did actually see her about to sit, if he did physically pull out the chair right before she sat, does kind of suggest that he calculated it, that he timed it, that he was thoughtful. Oh, crap. But what if he was just trying to be a gentleman? Right? He sees his aunt about to sit. So, of course, he goes to pull it out. Of course, he pulls it out too far. But why does he pull it out too far? Because he's, he's five. Five-year-olds might not have the right hand-eye coordination, depth perception, fine motor skills. And here's what happens. When I talk about think law as an act of rebellion, here's why. You know who struggled in law school the most? The kids who are so used 
to always having the right answer and getting great grades. Because for them, sitting there memorizing all the laws, that was where they were at. But if you do that, you'll get a C. We had this other set of people that like kind of do that and have a little bit of application in a very formulaic way of like, okay, this is how you apply these facts to these sets of laws, but they weren't flexible. They weren't adaptable enough, right? Because they don't necessarily know what it's like to watch my mom negotiating with the landlord about how not to get evicted. They don't necessarily know what it's like to stretch $20 further than any human being should be able to stretch $20. So like a lot of the same things that I sometimes get introduced about as like some part of suffering. I'm like, listen, I get it. I get that as educators of 2020, you should have a lot of knowledge around the way that trauma impacts our children's ability to learn, right? So I'm never going to be mad at you because you went to go attend a trauma-informed pedagogy workshop. I just want to be super clear that for a lot of educators, what y'all call trauma, kids like me call Tuesday. And I use a lot of that to be at the space where, like, I was number one throughout my entire time in law school. And it felt effortless because it literally was who I was. So now I've got this thing and I'm on a Nevada STEM coalition board because what's crazy is when you leave education, everyone listens to what you have to say about education. It's really weird. So now I'm like on this diversity committee for the system of higher education in Nevada and all these different conversations in many spaces, they keep on saying the same thing. The future of work, the future of work, the future of work. And what do we need? We need critical thinking and more critical thinking and more critical thinkers. Cool. Well, where are they? Oh, that magnet program over there. Oh, that robotics club over there. Oh, the small slice of this school within a school. So another version of the same separate but unequal education that I received. Dodging bullets still, right? We're still dodging bullets to create this access pipeline. So as I start thinking about this, I'm like, what if this thing that I'm doing every day, where I'm looking at things from different perspectives, I'm asking questions to get information, I'm making claims and backing it up with evidence. What if I took the same model of thinking like a lawyer and put it in the academic space? What might happen? And because I am who I am, I remember having a meeting with a former boss who was a high up in the district and then retired and became a chancellor for another school network. And she had always played by the book, a, you know, elder black woman, love her to death. And she's like, Colin, so this is very interesting, but I'm going to tell you that if you want to do curriculum, this isn't really how you do it. You know, you first you need to become an assistant principal, then later a principal. You probably have to go to school, get your PhD. You got to do research. You can't just roll out. I was like, OK, what, why can't I exactly? Well, that's just not how it's done. I'm like, great. Now there's just going to be a new way to do it because I don't need your system. Your system has never served me anyhow. So what did I do? Did I go get some fancy publisher? Did I go do some ridiculous stuff? Nope. I put together one lesson in Microsoft Word about that boy in a chair and gave it to my friends. It was the equivalent of me being a rapper and selling CDs at the back of my truck, right? It's like, buy these lessons, check out these lessons. And you know what happened? Teachers were like, what in the world is this? This is so much fun. I gave him the questions, I gave him the structure, and they were surprised. He was a shocking thing. The straight A, high-flying kids, guess what? They struggled. They were so used to a black and white world, they had no idea how to navigate the gray. My struggling learners. So my kids that were pretty much well-behaved, but they were struggling learners. 
right? Despite their best effort, they had a tough time. They were so used in learning how to learn that all that ambiguity was fine for them. And who really took it away was my behavior kids. My kids that were always getting in trouble for a bunch of shenanigans. Oh my goodness, they lived for this. And there's no surprise because I was the same exact way. When you spend your whole life telling teachers, well, what had happened was, it turns out you actually make for a really good law student. You have a really sound sense of analysis, predictions, inferences. You understand what the angles are. So when I say think law is an act of rebellion, this curriculum that we created that looks at real life legal cases starting in third grade and then from kindergarten to second does the same exact thing, but looking at fairy tales and nursery rhymes. Because listen, there are a lot of shady characters in children's stories. Don't even let me get started with Goldilocks. Goldilocks <laughs> has a lot of problems and I could air it out right now. <laughs> Right, from the breaking and entering to being all up in people's porridge, just violating people's space and decency. She's just a messed up person, and she didn't even do nothing to fix the problem. She just ran away and left. How about some restorative justice, people? How about you fix this thing? But anyhow, there's so much there. And at the same time, when it comes to our education system and giving access to critical thinking, there's not much there. There's no systemic approach that currently existed that allowed for all kids to access critical thinking because not all teachers were able to access the how of critical thinking. And a Thinking Like a Lawyer book has a framework across the board, no matter what subject you teach, no matter what grade level you do, where we really break down the how of what critical thinking looks like so that our kids can be the ones to not just question the way things are, but create a world the way that it ought to be. I feel so inspired right now. And then I'm like, can you replace Betsy DeVos, please? Because to me, inserting this is such an important part of raising children who will create this next world, because it's not going to start right now. And it is absolutely important that we go and teach kids how to think. So I love that. Thank you so much. But a couple of other questions. We talked about how obviously you don't like that it's the access to education is so limited. Given that, what is your take on private schools? Can I ask you a question? What's a private school? A school that parents pay out of pocket for. So when you say that, right? When you say that a private school is a school where kids pay out, of, where parents pay out of pocket for, I think that I want to go back to the conversation around systemic racism because I think you have too narrow of a view of what a private school is. The reality is the elementary school, that's a public elementary school that is 300 feet from my house is a private school because you can only go to that school if you live here in this community that you need to pay a premium on mortgage and rent to be able to live in. And in fact, when you look at the people that have been able to pay the premium because of the same wealth challenges that I talked about easier, it creates a space where there are much more substantial definitions of completely separate and unequal because the communities don't even resemble each other, right? Because we still basically fund schools from local property taxes, which means that that's going to be kind of a permanent divide. So when you say private school, I think that sometimes people look at it like, well, if you pay the big bucks to go to the school district and live in a neighborhood where all the schools are amazing and... You get all the resources in the world because the PTA can raise $200,000 a year. I don't know that the distinction matters all that much. And honestly, I don't care 
School is school. If anything, I am like private school as a black person in the United States of America, even though my ancestors are from the Caribbean, I identify with the African-American experience, with the African-American struggle. And I often think about the story of, uh, I always obsessed with the idea, this number just stuck out to me because it just seemed like a random number, 237. So 237, when they excavated the Jefferson compound in Monticello, where enslaved people were quartered, they found underneath everything, 237 unaccounted for slates. A whole bunch of different like pens and things and whatever. And like the only conclusion that they can come to is that there was a secret school happening at Monticello after hours in the late night, after a full day of doing brutal, brutal slave labor under the most brutal of conditions. These people were so committed to the idea of improving their station in life with no hope that they would actually be free, except for the idea that they can have a mind that is free, that they risk life and limb to get an education. And ultimately, there's no real difference between this idea that I need to do better for my family, for this next generation, than the thing that we all sort of feel. So I am not here to ever be in a shame game of shaming parents for wanting to do a homeschool pod or shaming parents for this. I want to think about why does it have to be a luxury good to get the kind of education that makes people want to go to a private school? So like, this resonates with me a lot because even when I was at Bronx Science and I was struggling a little bit academically, well, a lot, and then I started getting a little bit better. Junior year, we were reading The Scarlet Letter and I went to go visit my best friend who was at Deerfield Academy. Very prestigious boarding school. My whole time being in Deerfield was this culture shock, this complete 100% culture shock in every way imaginable. And there was a lot of reasons that my mother wanted me to go visit this friend a few times because I think she understood that me going there would allow me to reconnect with like what college could look like for me and really understand what that can feel like. And the reason I bring up the Scarlet Letter is because we were both reading the Scarlet Letter at the same time randomly. So I came on a Thursday night. I go to his class with him on Friday. And then Friday, I can tell you if this was in the Bronx at my high school, even at a specialized high school. We were learning the way everybody learned at my high school. We put the book on the board, we read a chapter, we answer questions about the chapter. It's very dictated by the teacher. The teacher was in charge, the teacher had the power, and we were just doing what we were told, okay? So here we were, and mind you, I told you what the population was, right? Mostly high poverty, right? 50 to 60% Asian American, first generation in this country, if not immigrants themselves, right? So like, and we're learning the compliance-based model in education. This is important to know, because now I'm at Deerfield Academy. And I'm like, first of all, where's your teacher? Oh, that's him right there. Oh, so he's just sitting down at a round table? This is your class? 12 people sitting around at a round table. Where's the chalkboard? Oh, we don't really do that chalkboard thing. We just kind of like talk about this. Oh, just talk? And I'm sitting here and I'm telling you, I'm having a time of my life. I'm like a rock star in this classroom. I'm like, making all these connections between the Scarlet Letter and the McCarty era hearings around communism in the Salem witch trials. And I'm like, I'm on fire, man. And I'm like, huh, one of these things is not like the other. But why? It's because who goes to Deerfield? 
Saudi princes, kids, kids of uh, wealthy senators, kids of like hedge fund people. And I'm just like, these are people that are getting the education they need to break stuff. And we are getting the education that we need to be their workers. Doesn't have to be that way. And that's why I feel like thinking like a lawyer is kind of a rebel text, is not presented as such. But when you create these frameworks that are accessible from the time that a kid is in kindergarten to question things, it just changes the notions of how our power dynamics work as a society. And I am a hopeless optimist. I can't stop having hope. I don't have a lot of hope for the adults. The adults are done for. But these kids, these kids got something. I already see it. They're more empathetic. They're more understanding. They're more open than any generation that have come before them. We can't screw this up. In many ways, they're our only hope in making it another generation. So I'm all in on these kids. Wow. I don't, I really have nothing to say, which is shocking for those of you who know me. Yeah, you're a lawyer. Hello. You always have something to come back with, too. I do. But yeah, I just, you know, I think that what you said is so powerful because it deals with so many of the just the very base issues around education in our country and putting aside all the divides of school type. And it really addresses the problem that we have or problems in a very understandable way, at least, you know, when we're talking about this. And, you know, I think for if you're talking to, to parents, let's say, I know we've talked about how there are many different parts of this equation as to how to solve or how to address this fundamental access issue. When you're talking to parents who ask you, how can they help? Where can they start? And especially those white parents that are, you know, listening to what you say and say, Colin, you know, I'm in, where can I start? What do you tell them? So I think it's really important that we start naming things more honestly. One of the things that we have a really hard time with as people is we're very uncomfortable with the word power. We don't like hearing it. And not only do we not like hearing it, we have a hard time acknowledging that we are in fact powerful. How many times do you hear people say things like, well, I'm just a teacher, or I'm just a stay at home mom, or, I'm just a low-level employee, or that's above my pay grade, right? There's all these things that we say to diminish our own power. Part of what I need you to do, I don't care who you are, honestly, because you could be any skin color and perpetuate systemic racism, okay? I need you to understand where your power lies and do a very deep dive into what is actually within your power, because here's what happens. You watch a George Floyd video, you go to a Black Lives Matter march, you buy White Fragility, you buy How to Be an Anti-Racist. And then I think about an example of a friend of mine who's a professor, and she was talking to me one day about like this business owner who was like cursing out these Black Lives Matters protesters in her community. And she noticed that they were part of a franchise, and she's like, Colin... Like, I want to, like, be a part of making sure that these franchise companies can, like, create stronger agreements around, like, making sure that they're not being racist. Uh, Their owners that own the franchises aren't being racist and make that part of their conduct or whatever have you. And I'm like, all right, cool. But, like, how many black faculty at your institution get tenure? How many black faculty do you have, period? 
how do your black students do at your school? So like the most important way that you can be an advocate for racial justice are in the spaces where you have a lot of power. I don't need you trying to take on McDonald's. It's probably a little bit like unnecessary for you to do that, particularly because you've got the power to change something right now. So what I always try to ask educators to do, parents to do, community members to do, business people to do is say like, what do you have the power to do right now? So if you have a company or if you, you know, like work at a company in a high position and you're in charge of HR, maybe you rethink that policy that you have where you look around at your non-diverse staff and somehow you created a policy for referral bonuses. So you're asking the same non-diverse staff from very similar upbringings to go ahead and get more of them in the door. How about you don't do that? Because that is a way to perpetuate the same sort of issue. At the same time, there's a business case for diversity. If all you care about is a bottom line, then you've got to care about having diverse voices in that room. So like, I want you to think about your power and name the top three areas that if you chose to do something tomorrow, it would happen. So like, I think about this. I do the introspection of being a teacher, first year teacher. I don't have a lot of money. I don't have a lot of clout in this building, but I have a tremendous amount of power with these students that I work with every single day. And when I start to examine the impact of that power, I recognize, because I'm not being colorblind. I'm being color aware and I'm being color kind. I'm being color aware and I'm recognizing that, strangely enough, in my classroom, I'm exhibiting not implicit bias, because I think implicit bias is kind of a crock. I think it's kind of a cop-out. I think it's something that we say to say to be nice to people when we really mean to say that they're being racist in a very explicit way. We say nicely, oh, that's implicit bias. But I was being explicitly biased against young black boys in my classroom. I had this really odd sense of trying to overprotect them, overprepare them for this super harsh world. So I would be much harsher on them than I should have normally been. So I checked my own data because I had the power to do that. I had the power to change the experience. I had the power to not give them tough love, but love love. Tell them that it was going to be all right, that I've got their back, that they can go get a drink of water and come back, and that we're going to come back to it, and we'll talk about whatever's making you so mad right now. But I'm not going to kick you out of class because you looked at me crazy. So that's kind of what I want us to do. Do a real introspection on where your power lies because you've got it. And once you start thinking about where you have that power, think about all the ways that that power, that privilege, those people that you know, can make you uniquely qualified to make a difference in your space when it comes to creating a more racially dressed world. I love that. I think it ties right back into how we started the conversation about at the end of the day, we're talking about improving our humanity and remembering our humanity and connecting together and helping each other out because we are people and we're in it together. Yeah, 100%. Thanks so much. Is there anything that we haven't asked that you want to talk about or Misasha, any other last questions as well? No, I mean, that's the big one. And also, where can we find you? And what's the best way to support ThinkLaw? Yeah, so I think the thing that I would close with, and it goes to the way that you can support us. So um, the Thinking Like a Lawyer book is available on Amazon. If you're here and, and you're connected to a school system in any way, or even 
a nonprofit or business or a foundation that's just trying to do a little bit better around critical thinking, I will strongly recommend this because while it's meant for educators, the frameworks here are universal, definitely for parents that are looking to think about how they could be champions for critical thinking, particularly within the space where it looks like we're going to be doing this home thing for a while, right? So I definitely would recommend that. I want to talk about one other aspect of this book, which is that when I say critical thinking, I'm not talking about critical thinking for the sake of critical thinking. Because if we're being honest, there were critical thinkers that engineered the Holocaust. If we're being honest, when the police in the Breonna Taylor case decide to like doctor the police report and makeups, like they're critically thinking about how to avoid accountability. When I think about critical thinking and the way that our kids truly need, I cannot escape the reality that this moment of anti-intellectualism that we are in is strongly tied to the idea that so many of our intellectuals are straight up jerks, straight up nasty people. They can't just be right. They've got to be right, smart, and make it clear that they're smarter than you. We can't have that. At a certain point, we've got to understand and teach our kids explicitly that doing right is more important than being right. Doing right is more important than being right. If we can have the best and the brightest young people from across this country embracing that concept, I believe we would live in a radically more decent world. And we don't need a more decent world. We need a radically more decent world. And it starts with us. One of the things that, again, because I just do random stuff as part of who I am, we sell our different t-shirts, right? We actually have a t-shirt on our website, thinklaw.us. If you go on Think Law Swag that says doing right is better than being right, we got another one that says don't raise your voice, improve your argument. And if you are at a school or want to know more about Think Law, you can always visit our website, thinklaw.us, and request a quote interested in seeing me speak or anything like that, you can all go do that at the website. You can follow me on Twitter at Colin E. Seal. You can follow me on Instagram at Colin Seal. And then Think Law can be followed at Think Law US on either handle. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here and for spending this time with us. Yeah, this has been a conversation that I've been looking forward to for a while. And yeah, I have so many things to take away from this. So thank you. Oh, totally. I'm already like, so I'm going to buy the book, even though I, because <laughs> like, I'm excited about it. And what I think is interesting is you're so into the curriculum and the actual like action points, right? Like you are really making the difference by giving these tools to people who are going to make the difference in the lives of the children. And I'm excited to see how this can be applied as we radically rethink education on a big picture. Like even stats like, you know, we barely teach government. We really barely teach civics and how to engage with government. Like how do we rethink how and what we're teaching the kids and rectify the total disparity in, in the, the curriculum that are taught in different states and all of that. So I can see how this applies across the board no matter what. And these are the skills that the adults can take into consideration as they interact with kids and companies, no matter what. But then, I don't know, I'm just excited to see where your random projects will take you in the big picture, too. Yeah, I can't wait. So much work to be done. And I appreciate you all for giving me the platform for this. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. 
Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Woman Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation. 